0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Durnley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we assess movements on the front lines, discuss the aftermath of a NATO summit reeling from events in the Middle East, and consider how locked in military and financial support is for Kyiv in a rapidly changing geopolitical environment.
1: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory.
2: If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job.
0: Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the grounds to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 12th of October, one year and 230 days since the full scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, following his attendance at the NATO summit yesterday and mountaineer and cyclist Jerry Gore, leader of a 3,000-kilometre bike ride to Ukraine, raising awareness of the physical and mental toll the war is taking on civilians young and old. Then later, we hear from Melinda Haring of the human rights organisation Razom and Ukrainian public intellectual Yevhen Libovsky on American support and the consequences of collective trauma on a society. I started first, however, by asking Joe for the latest from the battlefront.
2: So first, I'll start with the Russian ground offensive that has been launched in the last few days on the Donetsk region town of Avdivka. So open source analysts are starting to report on a large number of Russian losses as a result of Moscow's mechanised assault on the settlement. So looking at the estimates, looking at the footage, a conservative estimate would place losses at around 30. But... In some cases, those numbers do rise to 50, but ultimately there is no way of verifying whether the footage has been captured within the last few days. But some good open source analysts on Twitter seem to suggest the foliage and the weather conditions suggest they were. But as always, the fog of war leaves it unverifiable. So, but what do we know is on around October the 10th, so Tuesday, Moscow's forces launched a ground assault in a bid to encircle Avdivka, from the southwest and the northwest um so geolocated videos showed mechanized russian columns advancing towards the settlement in what appeared to be a blitzkrieg style tactic of sweeping advances um so russia and ukraine have often shied away from these mechanized assaults because they're costly quite frankly whether they the vehicles the tanks the Armoured fighting vehicles, they get caught in minefields and muds or just brilliantly devised anti tank positions. And this seems true of what's happened to the Russians in the last few days after making what looked like an assault and getting within sort of five miles of Abdivka on the sort of southwest and northwestern edges of it. So President Zelensky today said. Avdivka, we are holding our ground. It is Ukrainian courage and unity that will determine how this war will end. We must all remember this. So what happened is it looks like the Russian forces have made and actually made some sort of credible great gains around the town but then they've hit the main Ukrainian line of defence, of so the uh, various minefields, anti-tank positions and basically artillery fire which has enabled Kiev's men to put a halt to this advance that's, and that's sort of very similar to how when Ukraine attacked. They tend to come up against these very well-organised defences, and that's what Ukraine has got in place here. So, Russian losses, we believe, if we look at the videos, include at least one of each of their four main battle tanks. That's the T-62, the T-72, the T-80, and the T-90. There's some quite staggering footage at one point, which showed a column of Russian armour we believe to be north of Avdivka. and the, the column was made up of about 10 vehicles, and they basically was spotted by a reconnaissance drone operated by the Ukrainian military and then hellfire rained down on them and took out a great deal. So we don't know what happened to the Russian soldiers or actually the vehicles, whether they were disabled, completely destroyed. But what it does look like is this surprise offensive has come to an end. But what is important about this, so Avdivka has been one of these towns which has been at the forefront of fighting if we look way back to the initial invasion of donbass in 2014 so it was originally a town of 30,000 people in the outer suburbs of the city of donetsk that's an area that russia controls and avdivka is essentially the sort of a key point in the ukrainian defenses dating back to 2014 to stop russia advancing north and into more of ukraine so the settlement as i said is an integrated part of ukraine's defenses along that eastern line and it's been one of these kind of towns that has been absolutely bombarded since February last year it's left in ruins I can't imagine many of the 30,000 people who used to live there are left but it's one that Russia they, they expended a lot of effort trying to capture it in their winter offensive and it seems like they're going to try again but some people would suggest that this is an attempt to divert attention away from Ukraine's main lines of advance it could be an attempt to take away efforts in Bakhmut because there seems to be gains reported there every day even if they are a few hundred meters at a time but I'll stop there because there's some more updates to be had. Ukraine's interior minister Ihor Klimenko he today updated the death toll of the recent Russian attack on Hroza, the village near Kharkiv which was targeted by an Iskander ballistic missile during a wake of a fallen soldier. So Mr. Klimko he said that the death toll is now at 59 fatalities after DNA investigators were able to identify 19 more victims who had previously been left in a sort of a state of unrecognisable nature, which has required forensic guys to come in and investigate. Then we go to a Ukrainian forces have claimed to have intercepted what they described as a Russian reconnaissance group in the Sumi region up by the Russian border. So if we're looking at the northern border, northwestern border, between Russia and Ukraine. So Ukraine's territorial defence forces operating in the Sumi region said they intercepted a reconnaissance group of eight Russian soldiers who were reportedly heading in the direction of local critical infrastructure. And that was from a spokesman from Ukraine's territorial defence in that area. And then a update from the Ukrainian naval, Navy spokesman, has said the Pavel Dushavin, which is a Russian patrol ship that belongs to the Black Sea fleet, was damaged in an explosion. So the spokesman didn't offer any exact details or even any sort of minor details other than it had been damaged in an explosion. But that, again, just shows that Ukraine is intent on targeting the Russian Black Sea Fleet and pushing it away from sort of Ukraine's waters up and further back onto sort of Russia's coastal line and even Georgia with this new sort of talk around Abkhazia becoming a new home for the Black Sea Fleet.
0: Thanks, Joe. And I understand there's an interesting interview with General Budanov, the head of Ukraine's military intelligence. What's he been saying?
2: Yeah, so Krilla Budinov, a guy that we speak about a lot, the maverick, I think he's now a three-star general in charge of Ukraine's military intelligence. He's given an interview to Ukra- Ukrainska Pravda. And in that interview, he says he believes Russia is likely only capable, economically and technically, to be able to continue its war in Ukraine until 2025 or 2026. So, yes, that is a sort of a long time that Ukraine has to hold out and carry on convincing the West to supply them with weapons, to keep their economy afloat, but also basically to keep enough men alive to continue that defence of their country. While it's not definitive, he thinks that 2025 or 26 could be a turning point. He didn't go into exact details, which is unfortunate, but he said stuff previously that he basically believes that Russia's economy will run out of the ability to fund itself, whether it be due to to Western sanctions, or it won't have the ability to make any more weapons. We already know they're going begging around the Iranians and the North Koreans, hoping to bring in munitions to fund or to fuel their war machine, sorry. But the one thing that Budinov did warn, which I think is quite crucial here, and it's often overlooked, um, he warned that Russia's human resources, so the men it can throw into a fight if it mobilises again, or uh, we know Putin doesn't really have any sort of care for life, and he's happy to throw men into the meat grinder. That's something the Ukrainians aren't doing and won't do. So that is the question that goes over, is at what point will the war become a... Conflict of human resources where one side is willing to continue expending civilian life in favor of military gains. And it looks like Budinov suggests that Russia would be willing to do that for longer. And then, while it's not directly linked to Ukraine, Budinov has commented on Hamas's use of drones. So he said that tactics displayed by the terror group were likely a result of training by the Russians. So Budenov distanced himself from claiming that Russia had any direct involvement in Hamas's attack on Israel, but he said the tactics strongly mirrored those of Russia in the invasion of Ukraine, and he pointed towards how that Ukraine, Russia, has used sort of various different types of drones to hit armoured vehicles and take them out and often looks to target armoured vehicles as much as possible because it knows they're the most sort of deadly threat to its troops. So it's interesting to hear a Ukrainian point when for so long, many of us have been looking for the last few days about what sort of influence could Russia have been having in this new war in Israel.
0: Thanks, Joe. Yes, this remains very much an open question. Of course, President Zelensky yesterday very keen to push the connections between the two. Obviously, he there are motivations for him to do so. Although, as I said yesterday, I think in many ways, one could argue this has validated a position he's held for a very long time, which is that it was almost certain that the longer the war in Ukraine was enabled, that there would be potential offspills of that. And I think the open question is what the degree of offspill is. It may be very minor or it could be very significant indeed, but it remains an open question. Interesting too, I think what you were saying there about the Ukrainians already saying we know this is going to be a long war, talking about next year, the year after that year, possibly even after that. The question is whether... The Western resolve to commit to Ukraine will be able to be sustained for that long. Of course, the West has said that it will, but that is a very long way away indeed. And so it's interesting, I think, that he's willing to talk about that openly. It speaks, I think, to no doubt high-level conversations that are taking place about needing to perhaps lower expectations. Because as we've spoken about many times, arguably the Ukrainians have been a a victim of their own success uh, based on... Uh, expectations around counter-offensives, uh, etc. Um, just one more question to you, Joe, before I go through the rest of the political updates. Obviously, you were at the NATO summit yesterday, reported live for us from there. I understand you also spoke to Bill Gates briefly. But just what was the atmosphere like there? Obviously, we are living in a moment here of huge geopolitical ramifications, not only in the Ukraine context, but also, of course, the shocking events in the Middle East at the weekend. Was there a palpable anxiety at that summit that you could sense?
2: Yeah, so um, unfortunately, I didn't actually get to speak to Bill Gates. He merely, so I must admit, I slipped off out of the NATO summit to attend a Bill Gates speech in Brussels yesterday. And as I was delivering some updates from the NATO summit, he slipped past me and into a room where I'm sure he was enjoying a plethora of coffees and sort of warm white wine as, you, as one does at these at these Brussels sort of conferences. But yeah, no, the summit is interesting. It's day two today. And the main sort of topic of interest, apart from internal NATO matters, is Israel. But I can, I'm can i off back off to NATO after I leave the podcast and I can update you on that tomorrow. But yeah, the, there was a sense of sort of anxiety. And as I said yesterday, I think that's why President Zelensky arrived in Brussels to seek assurances for uh, ongoing Western support and looking for that help when there's a sort of questions raising over can western governments whether it be the US who has long-term military commitments to Israel as well as Ukraine now can sustain and basically f- fuel the defense of both of those countries um so zelensky said he had received assurances from washington that military aid to ukraine will remain constant and uninterrupted he said it was clear that america will continue to provide ukraine with constant and uninterrupted Supplies for its defences. And what he wanted was, he pointed out air defence, artillery, and ammunition. And that was what he said to be needed to push Russia out of Ukrainian territories. So, yeah, as I said, I can only believe, and there were genuine concerns. The people I spoke to before the meeting were saying, look, we need to be guarded against this. Of course, we're not scraping at the end of the barrel about what we can give Ukraine, but we are coming to an end. And that's why we've had to look at ramping up military production of shells and various other air defense ammunitions um but i think president Zelensky can go back to Kyiv as he has done overnight with a feeling confident but that wasn't mirrored in what he was telling journalists at various press conferences he held so he, after leaving nato he went to visit um the belgian prime minister as i reported yesterday to discuss Belgium joining the International Jet Coalition to deliver F-16s to Ukraine. And in a press conference, he was asked, what do you think about Israel and waning support? And he said, look, of course, everybody's afraid. Who knows how it will be? I think nobody knows. But what I'd say is interesting is, after he's come away with these assurances, and we briefly touched on them, there's like, so the US announced 200 million more in sort of air defence, Heimar rockets, artillery shells, the Britain pledged a... 100 million towards a new, the delivery of a Terrorhawk Paladin air defense system, as well as a counter drone systems as well and as mine clearing equipment. The Germans pledged a billion euro winter package, which included Iris T, Patriot battery, and Jeopard anti aircraft tanks. So I think Zelensky can be happy with what he's come away with, but he is obviously minded. But what I think was also quite interesting was he, at this time, doesn't want to come across as all me. We can remember back to Ben Wallace's warnings, Jake Sullivan's warnings, that sometimes Ukraine might have to show a little bit more gratitude for the donations and the risks its Western partners have taken to deliver weapons. So as he received all those offers of aid, Mr Zelensky was very keen to emphasise the fact that the West also has to demonstrate that Israel is not alone as it faces down the Hamas terrorists, and he urged leaders to go to Israel, get on the ground and support the people there as well. So we know James Cleverly was in Israel. I'm sure we can expect some more sort of Western political figures to go. There are even rumours that President Zelensky may travel to Israel to offer his support to Prime Minister Netanyahu. So yeah, it's an interesting time. But I think there is a quiet confidence now that the West can continue supporting Ukraine through this current Israeli conflict. Given the fact, I was speaking to yesterday, Israel is a very different prospect when it comes to the war in Ukraine
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Joe. You talked there about the commitments made by Western leaders at the summits, and i think it 's just important to note that Ukraine has received pledges of weapons and funding that are already locked in for many months. It's not as if Ukraine is being kept afloat on a month-by-month basis, financially and militarily. As you mentioned there, we've got the firm pledges for F-16s to arrive in Ukraine in 2024 and twenty five. The International Fund for Ukraine just announced this package worth over £100 million for the armed forces. It's included in that tanks, engines for armoured fighting vehicles, temporary bridges, minefield breaching capabilities. And these pledges are... Announce now but they're about things that are coming many months down the road and so i just think it's important listeners know that it's not as if it's like a, um, that month's delivery is then used up and then they have to go back and ask again next month it's just not the way that it works but of course if we're talking here about a very long destabilization in the middle east then of course there will be anxieties if things turn even more sour i can imagine the ukrainians getting anxious about the degree of 100% locked-inness that's a term of these commitments and the long-term durability of western support for but for now that doesn't seem to be being seriously considered although i should add that some hardcore republicans in the us are calling for the immediate end to support ukraine and for those funds and resources to be transferred to israel instead now One more word on the NATO summit. NATO has said that it will give a determined response if it finds proof that damage to the gas pipeline in the Baltic Sea we discussed yesterday was a deliberate result of sabotage by a hostile power. That's coming straight from Jens Stoltenberg. This is following that pipeline, which runs across the seabed of the Baltic and connects Finland with Estonia, being badly damaged along with a telecommunications cable in the early hours of Sunday. The finger has been pointed at Russia, but that is not been definitively proven yet. Nonetheless, this is another issue that is rumbling on. Uh, Staying in Europe, a minor story in the grand scheme perhaps, but since we've covered this issue for several weeks now and with Roland even on the ground doing his own investigations, I think it's worth mentioning. So Romanian authorities have said today that they found a crater from a suspected drone that may have exploded on impact on its territory near the border with Ukraine, reviving concerns about possible spillover of the war onto a NATO member country. So, this came pre dawn discovery. It's about three kilometers west of a village across the Danube River from Ismail in Ukraine, that port city, of course, very important. And it was made by the Romanian Defense Ministry, who said they detected a series of drones heading towards Ukrainian river ports from Russian lines. This is another of those issues that rumbles away in the background. And We may not need to talk about it all the time, but if something went horribly wrong, we would all know about it very quickly, hence why we draw attention to it when there is a major development. Now, finally, turning to Russia, Putin is holding talks in Kyrgyzstan today during what is his first foreign trip since the ICC issued an arrest warrant for him in March. This two-day trip uh, will culminate in his participation in a summit of the Commonwealth of Independent States, That grouping of some of the former Soviet republics amid signs, of course, that Russia's influence in some parts of the former Soviet Union, such as Armenia, is under increasing pressure. He's also due to travel to China next week for the Third Belt and Road Forum in Beijing. Neither Kyrgyzstan nor China, of course, are members of the ICC, which was established to prosecute war crimes. Neither, of course, is the USA, which is often used as a means of discrediting the ICC by its Opponents. Inside Russia, we understand a row has broken out about what to do with Russians who fled the country to side with Ukraine, with the chairman of Russia's parliament saying they should be charged with treason and sent to work in mines in parts of Russia where there is no summer if they return home. Moscow, of course, is trying to encourage some specialists, such as IT workers, to return and says some Russians have already come back. But as I say, the Speaker of the Duma, Volodin, made it very clear his own view about the return of Russians, who he regards as traitors. To quote from him, if they start returning now, but have made statements against the country and financed the armed forces of Ukraine, then of course, we must choose a place to send them immediately. Such actions relate to Article 275 of the Criminal Code, state treason. We're probably talking about mines, and we need to find territories where the weather is more constant, where there's no summer. In other words, I think he's talking about the far eastern region, known, of course, historically for its gulags in the Stalin era. It's telling, I think, that the only objections to this made publicly have come from the governor of the region, Sergei Nosov, made uh, not on ethical grounds, but because the region doesn't accept traitors. An idea that he said was based on an outdated cliché and was now home to hard-working patriotic Russians. Now, the Kremlin has clarified its own position, saying it's not on the same path as Russians who have fled and adopted what it called strong anti-Russian positions, those individuals who'd left, but that other citizens were free to return. And the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, said that the others who had left, whom he described as people who uh, freely choose where to live at any given time, were the vast majority and were always welcome to return. This is their homeland, Russia, and she's always waiting for them. Well, yes, that's one way of putting it. Lastly... Russian rights campaigner Oleg Orlov has urged a Moscow court uh, to acquit him of discrediting the armed forces by speaking out against the war in Ukraine, saying Russians had the right to disagree with their president. Very brave man. Moscow is seeking to fine this 70-year-old gentleman £2,000 over a Facebook post denouncing the invasion. He said, Where is it defined that our commander-in-chief always rightly understands not only the interests of Russia, but the interests of its citizens? This is coming from his closing remarks. And if the ideas of a part of Russia's citizens about their own interests don't match those of the commander-in-chief, don't they have the right to talk about this? But in that case, the president is no longer a president, but a spiritual and secular leader. Or are Russia's top officials now infallible, like the Pope? As I say, these are pretty brave remarks, given the fact that we know how figures have been prosecuted as a result of speaking out against Putin on these matters. He is, of course, another of those figures who've remained in Russia in order to speak out against the regime, facing very serious consequences for doing so. So that's where we are in the political realm. Now, It's been a while since we've been joined on the podcast by somebody fundraising for Ukraine, and this one is pretty extraordinary, a 3,000-kilometre bike ride to Ukraine to raise awareness of the mental and physical toll that this war is taking on civilians. Jerry Gore, thank you very much for your time. If you could just start off by introducing yourself to our listeners. What's your story, and how did you become interested in helping Ukraine?
3: So I live with type 1 diabetes myself. And I I first got interested and bound up in this war pretty much like so many people at the start of the invasion. I live with type 1, as I said. I've overcome a lifetime of extreme challenges. But living with type 1 is the hardest thing I've ever had to overcome. So type 1 is usually contracted between the ages of 5 to 15 years old. It involves multiple daily injections of insulin and constant monitoring of your blood sugar levels. And it's an intensive education for both patient and carer. If you don't, you risk severe complications and blindness. So stress is a constant companion for everyone living in a war zone. That was clear from the start of this war. And I think podcasts like yours have made it very clear. And stress is one of the primary factors in contracting this complex condition. So, of course, my heart went out to the people and especially the children living with type one diabetes and then living in a war zone. And that's
0: what really got me started on my quest to, to do my bit. Thank you. And just tell us about Ride Ukraine 2023. Why did you decide to cycle to a war zone? What's the plan? So the plan was
3: to raise money for essential medicines and supplies for people with diabetes living in areas close to the front line and basically to show support with our hearts, not just our wallets. Personally, I I could give £10 to a charity. I'd never see it. I'd never understand how it helped. When you cycle through a country and when you talk to the people – who live in that country cycling at about 10 miles an hour. Sadly, I don't go much faster than that. You see everything, you feel everything, you hear everything. And we wanted to show our support. And we also wanted to unite the European diabetes community to offer solidarity for those living with diabetes in Ukraine. We had no other agenda other than to help those with type 1 diabetes And so our perspective was unbiased, but yeah, we
0: we wanted to do something. And tell us about cycling across Ukraine. What did you see? And I imagine that as part of cycling, you're seeing things at a slower pace. You might talk to people that you wouldn't if you were in a car. What did you experience? Well, a, a huge amount is the simple answer. Rural
3: Ukraine is obviously very different from the big cities like Kiev or Lviv. They're different worlds. But when you're out in the countryside, cycling along small lanes where you see more horses and carts than you do cars, frankly, and then you stop at local stores, our equivalent in the UK, of a corner shop, and our Ukrainian guide brilliant cyclist called alex from kiev he'd go in he'd buy some food and we're dressed in our ukrainian colors we'd ride ukraine 2023 and we're clearly looking a bit like aliens on on planet earth and and we and and, and they ask questions what are you doing why are you here why are you dressed like that and is like for a really good fit for a man sixty-two years old, <laughs> but they said all that in in Ukrainian. But what came out was when we told them, when they understood, they were just emotionally, just almost devastated. People with very little money would come up with up to us and give us ten grivna, hundred grivna, and they take a picture of our QR codes that we had on our on our posters that we looked pl- at, the plasticated maps. And it's just that feeling from normal, everyday people with no agenda, who will never be seen or heard, that there's people coming, frankly, as I described, from another world to come and say, we're with you. And that meant so much. We obviously met, the whole trip was set up by Dr. Irina Blashensko she's vice president for the international diabetes federation she lives in kiev she's very well connected so we met people like alina govorova deputy of kiev city council we met people like professor mankovsky president of the ukrainian diabetology association and they'd give us awards and medals the mayor of Lviv made a presentation in front of about 150 people and just thanked us and and you feel and hear these people and it resonates and they need help. And and those were our general experiences right the way through. But I've got to say, we only cycled as far as Kiev. That was our goal. We hadn't, we didn't go to the front line. I'm quite open about that. And we still saw and felt and heard a lot. And and sometimes, frankly, in, in Kiev, I thought. This is a normal city. In fact, it's a pretty exceptional city. It feels like New York at night with neon signs and coffee shops. And in fact, Aida was playing at the opera in Lviv. And you go, well, that's not war. But then you look just slightly underneath and everything. Just at night, we were out on the streets looking at at people and and seeing what they do. And there was this one case where this girl, she's probably 18 She's very well dressed. She comes out, she stands on a box, and people start to gather around her. She's very quiet, and she's got a flute, and she's got a live phone, and she's got a little card with a picture of a person and some words in acrylic in script, which I really don't understand, I'm sad to say. And she just played the most beautiful music. And we listen and we watch. And then I said to Alex, well, what's the story? What's she doing? He went down and he read the card. And the card basically, first of all, the picture was a picture of her father, who's now dead. And she was raising money for the troop that was with him on the front line who were last with him when he died. And she was trying to raise money for those soldiers so they could have better clothing for the fast approaching winter. And and You might say, wow, it's just amazing and spectacular and one-off. We saw things like that everywhere we went. Everyone we saw was connected with this war in some way, often very deeply. And it, it resonates. And you realize, yes, you are in a war zone. This is not like walking down the high street of Birmingham or Bristol or any other Western city. These people are inextricably linked up with this horrendous situation, and they've all got a story to tell.
0: And I also understand you met up with some Ukrainian cyclists. We cycled with members of the Kiev
3: cycling community. We cycled with cyclists from Lviv, and some of them were amateurs, some of them were semi-pro, some were pro. They're all still cycling in a war zone. They won't give up. They're still training and they're still racing and they're still using their their skills and their sport to raise money, again, normally for soldiers on the front line. The roads can be really good and the roads can be absolutely atrocious. The traffic, I've got to say, is dangerous. I don't know if, if the listeners know, but you can buy a driving license in Ukraine for about $200. So you can guess the level of driving. And everywhere you go, there are often abandoned vehicles or what have you. So it cycling is not safe in Ukraine anyway. It's especially not safe in Ukraine when you've got air raids and alarms and also things like Mines. We we were taken on a detour as we got to Kiev. We went on a detour. We went via Bucha and Adivka and the areas hit just at the start of the invasion. And we're literally cycling on empty roads, but there's still roads that you can cycle on, and passing signs where it just said mine clearance. And then we saw a, a man who was literally just come back from his shift. He looked weary, he looked tired. And he'd just been clearing mines, and that was right by the road, and that's just outside Kiev. Of course, as you go further east, it becomes more and more intense, and more mines, more danger. But cyclists, like all the Ukrainians we met, are just determined, and they'll keep cycling, and they enjoy their cycling, and they're saying, "Well, why shouldn't
0: we if we can?" And they do. Well, thank you, Jerry. Any other memories for you from? The trip, the three thousand kilometres, that will stick with you.
3: Yeah, I think really it was the well, many, but I spoke to a lot of uh, mothers and doctors, and one of uh, one of the the mothers whose child, eleven year old child, uh, called Artem, he he contracted uh, type one diabetes after after the invasion, and basically she said he, he contracted type one diabetes in June two thousand and twenty two as a direct result of stress, when his classmate called him from Butcher following the Russian invasion and asked for help, saying she was naked with Russian soldiers and her parents had been killed. The mother's work colleagues took the girl abroad, but sadly she died in October last year. Artem couldn't handle this news. Uh, He's 11 years old, he's quite a sensitive child, he was not ready for this, and he wasn't ready for the nightly rockets and bombings, and type 1 diabetes was the result. And this story was told to me by a mother who was clearly distraught, clearly looking at her phone all the time because she could, she was lucky she got a sensor, a thing called a Freestyle Libre sensor, which monitors the child's blood sugar. And even though he wasn't with her in his Wi-Fi, Bluetooth range, um, she could see it. And she's constantly looking at it and constantly threatening and, and, and that's the effect of a war on on a mother and on, on a child. He got this condition because of the war, and when he goes into the air raid shelters, he's eleven years old. I can say again, she has to bring nappies because he's constantly wetting himself, and he needs he needs support. And of course, the other thing about it is that his blood sugars are always high. When you're, in, when you're in stress, your stress hormones kick in and the result is your blood sugars are high. And that's very worrying as well when you see your child effectively sick in, in in front of you. So when I went into some of the air raid shelters and I saw how these people have to go underground regularly three, four times a week and how they have to live, and especially in winter, you start understanding the need and you start understanding how much this section of the population is affected. Everyone's affected by this war. But that's what I saw and heard.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Jerry. And we'll include some information about the project, the ride, in the show notes and description for this episode. I'll come back to you in the moment for the very final thoughts. But first of all, Joe Barnes, what are your final thoughts for today? So my final thought is how, and you look back at when, well, before Vladimir Putin ordered his
2: invasion of Ukraine, there was often references about this is all about no to NATO expansion, no to strengthening NATO's eastern borders. And that's exactly what he's failed in. So Vladimir Putin has essentially reinvigorated NATO, which Emmanuel Macron just a few years ago described as brain dead. And once again, it just seems to be getting stronger and stronger. So one of the latest examples, which I was speaking to the Dutch Defence Minister about yesterday, was the Netherlands is going to send three MQ-9 Reaper drones, the ones without missiles, to Romania to help with the surveillance in that area, whether it be the Black Sea or surveillance of Russian drones being fired at sort of Danube ports and making their way into Romania. So it's fascinating to see how NATO has been reinvigorated to a certain degree and how that reinvigoration has landed on NATO's border with the old sort of Soviet countries, that eastern flank as it's described as. So, And as Stoltenberg and other allies continue to say, Ukraine will one day be a member of NATO. We don't know when that's going to be. It won't be during the war, but it will happen at some stage, they say. Um, Vladimir Putin's really going to have failed. He's got Sweden to join. Finland have already joined After applying after sort of decades of military neutrality, you've got as many troops stationed on NATO's eastern borders for as long as I've been alive, probably longer. Um, Yes, it's just remarkable how Vladimir Putin's sort of miscalculation um, for invading Ukraine has only backfired
0: and gone against some of his stated aims of the war, if we can believe them. Well, thank you very much, Joe. And Jerry, as our guests today, what are your final thoughts? I've obviously emphasized how much we felt
3: our support for Ukraine resonated with Ukrainians. They really appreciate the support and goodwill that people from outside Ukraine can show. And so I urge everyone listening to this podcast to continue taking action and supporting Ukrainian people. Um, Ride Ukraine was about supporting vulnerable children with type 1 diabetes caught up in this war. Uh, We chose to cycle to Ukraine, but they have no choice about this war and it'll continue. So please continue to support. That money is being handled by Direct Relief in partnership with the International Diabetes Federation. So I can guarantee, heart on hand, that money will go directly to people who need it. And so I would encourage you to continue supporting the Ukrainians who have no choice in this war.
0: Thanks, Joe and Jerry. Earlier, I mentioned that following events in the Middle East, some Republicans in the United States have called for support for Ukraine to be immediately withdrawn. Whilst in Washington several weeks ago, I sat down with Melinda Haring of the human rights organisation Razom and Ukrainian public intellectual Yevhen Libovsky about the strength of Western support and how stereotypes of Ukrainian culture and people often contrast with the complex reality. Our conversation began, however, with the role of Britain as perceived in Washington and Kyiv.
4: You know, Britain's been great. I have to give you guys credit. London has been ahead of Washington at least four times, maybe five times on big weapons decisions. And the Biden administration is too slow. They, They tend to think that the debates we have about Ukraine are sort of law school debates. And these are serious debates that affect my friends' lives, right? Like these are Debates that have enormous impact, and they need to hurry the hell up already. But look, I think that there's a lot of objections to Ukraine aid, and we're trying to meet those objections head on in a fair way. Facts still do matter. The objections that I see when I go out to Florida or Texas, you know, sometimes it's, is Ukraine aid being misused? And that was a pretty easy one to respond to. The inspector general has done countless reports on assistance, and the reports come back clean. I'm from the state of Alaska, and Francis, I went to Alaska last November, and I spoke at the Alaska World Affairs Council, and I spoke at my high school, Kenai, Alaska, a village of 7,000 people, and this is Trump's territory, right? I expected lots and lots of objections about assistance to Ukraine. I got none. I got up and I gave a big stump talk about why Ukraine matters to U.S. national interests, and the response I got was, where can we send the check? Who should we be giving assistance to? They got it. They instinctively got it. So I'm hopeful, even in areas that are more Republican and isolationist, when you get out there and you make the arguments and you explain what's at stake, Americans will respond in goodwill.
0: So you're looking at this from the perspective of somebody, of course, who's in D.C. at the moment and is also very much tuned into what's happening on the ground in Kyiv. What is your perspective on nature of American and Western support for Ukraine at the moment. Is the West doing enough?
1: All the West is doing more than we could have hoped for in the beginning, but it's not enough and it's too late. The things that should have come earlier would have helped to save countless lives who were needlessly lost because the tanks were there early enough, because the planes are not there because the missiles were not there, because the Atacans are still not there. And I think it generally reflects the evolution of Western thinking about Ukraine. And we're actually on a very good trajectory from Kiev in three days, Kiev falling in three days, through Ukraine not losing to Ukraine winning. But if this recognition of Ukraine's agency, of Ukraine's importance, of Ukraine's input into the European project into the international peace would have been assessed earlier and would have been perceived as important earlier. We would not have been at such dire situation as we are in right now. This war was generally avoidable, and there was too much blindness as to what Russia was doing, and there is not enough self-critical assessment of imperialism or colonial policies in the West generally. As a result, things that countries should not get away with, they do get away with. And that becomes a problem not when they do it, but only when they turn extremely aggressive. So I would say that there is a lot of appreciation for Western assistance in Ukraine and a lot of disappointment that that assistance came later than it could have come and that it is behind the schedule and that the price that eventually Ukraine will pay or is paid right now is significantly
0: higher than it had to be. Do the Ukrainians that you speak to understand the hesitancy, or is it just completely befuddling to them?
1: Well, I mostly speak to the professional crowd. And there has been a very mixed record in the US-Ukraine relations. You know, it started on the wrong foot with Chicken Kiev speech in Kiev, 23 days before Ukraine proclaimed independence. President George Bush called it suicidal nationalism, you know. Then Bill Clinton from the Democratic administration had the Budapest Memorandum and denuclearization process in Ukraine, which he now says he regrets, which he think is making a second mistake over the first one, because I think it was right that Ukraine was... Stripped of nuclear arms, but I think it was wrong that Russia was not stripped. Because if you have a transitional country, you have to be aware of what kind of restraints the nuclear arms make on the transformation of society. And the lack of nuclear arms allowed Ukraine to transform in a healthy way. But the presence of the nukes, was exactly the reason why Russia did not transform because it felt itself insulated from threats and from the need to be more accountable as a member of the global community. So then we had the failure in Bucharest when Ukraine and Georgia got very vague promise that maybe one day these countries will be part of NATO. And the US could have put much more pressure on its European partners, first of all, Germany and France, to get Ukraine and Georgia under the umbrella. Then we had terrible Obama's decision-making in 2014, and Obama basically downplayed the scale of the problem with annexation of Crimea. Bad, bad handling of Ukraine by Donald Trump, and now we have this legacy of misinterpretations and bad judgment that is already almost 30 years long. So I think it's time for us to get you know on the right foot. And I think it's time for us to try and reassess where we are and why Ukraine is important. And I believe that the sooner we do it, the better it is, not only for Ukraine, but the better it is for the European Union, for
0: the European community in general, and for the United States included. All of that said, has the United States, since the full-scale invasion, redeemed itself and the West more broadly in the eyes of Ukrainians, do you think? Or is there still a sense of, you guys just don't get it? Well, as I'm saying,
1: this is a dynamic process. So we can't give it a static assessment. So it's not a matter whether the United States has redeemed itself. It is in the process of redeeming itself. From the Ukrainian perspective, not fast enough. From the U.S. perspective, that is also limited by a number of issues. You know, there's a political process, there's a certain velocity with which the political system can process issues, there's certain discussion that's happening inside the political entities here. So we have to respect these conditions because they're part of the natural decision-making process and they reflect the sophistication of uh, modern democracy it's understandable. It's just that from the Ukrainian perspective, the price is great and you can't
0: bring these people back to life. Well, that was going to be my next question is, what do you say to those in the West who, and particularly here it in Britain and the United States, say the Ukrainians are not thankful enough, not grateful enough for what the West has done? How do you respond to that?
1: Well, I think that the whole grateful or not grateful debate is a bit tabloid, I would say. I think it misses the essence that it would be much cheaper for a British or American or German taxpayer to have the government that could foresee the problem, and uh, that would be acutely aware that there is no free lunch and what Russia is offering actually comes with a hefty hidden price. But at the same time, it's the chance for all of us to come to terms with our values. Do, do we stand actually for what we declare we stand for? Do we see the virtues of our societies the way we declare we see them? Do we really believe that these lives are important? Do we really believe that democracy is important? Do we really believe that free market is important? Do we really believe that fundamental freedoms are important? And this is exactly what Ukraine stands for. It stands in its own, sometimes awkward way, because it's a young, very infantile nation at transit, while Having to at the same time reform itself and defend itself. But the Ukrainians don't complain about that. And they generally don't complain about the harshness of destiny that they had for the last 100 years. That included the famine, the Second World War, Chernobyl. You know, Ukraine had a lot of tragedies that other nations never faced in such concentration. What Ukrainians are saying is that we can do more and we can do better. One of your core focuses
0: is the impact this war has had on civil society. Where to start? I mean, what's your sense at this stage of the war in the transformations that have taken place, good and bad, in Ukraine?
1: Well, Ukraine is a country that has lived through a totalitarian state. So Ukrainians are very skeptical of the state because the state has been the villain in recent Ukraine's history. So it may sound strange from the Western perspective, but actually Ukrainians would like to have a weak state, but the state that would still be able to protect. And that also means that Ukrainians are willing to take greater responsibility upon themselves. And this is why Ukrainians actually come in such incredible numbers with volunteer movement, with the civil society networks, and take that little piece of responsibility upon their shoulders and deliver. This is part of the response to totalitarian trauma. When the government becomes too strong and not accountable, and we don't have in our political history experience of political accountability, this is only something that we will have to build with the new generation political institutions that are created or will be created. That means that Ukrainians have to take into their own hands the matters that are delegated in other societies, and that in many cases, people in other societies don't even realize how they're delegated. So being Ukrainian means being acutely aware that you have to come for your own rescue. And if you don't do it, you're probably going to be in a greater trouble than you can imagine. And what about
0: the collective trauma, if that's the right way of putting it, that we will see as a consequence of the war in Ukraine?
1: Oh, that's much worse. That's not the consequence of the war in Ukraine. We have the trauma that is 100 years old from events like the famine of the 1930s, more that has never been healed, has never been addressed. So the parents would basically imprint their traumatic experience into upbringing of their children, and that would go from generation to generation, from mother to a child, and this is the way trauma became inherited. We have a lot of people in Ukraine who have personally never experienced the famine, but are bearers the trauma of famine, or who have not been raped, but are bearers of the trauma of, of rape. And so, this experience of this war goes on top of already existing trauma. Trauma debilitates, but at the same time, it makes one more resilient. And this resilience that we see from Ukraine that goes beyond the Western scale of measurement in the public discourse, is coming exactly from that trauma. That trauma, on one hand, makes suffering a daily routine. On the other hand, it allows you not to be shocked by the next hit and be able to find a way, find resources, find the internal power to, to struggle and to win. I was interested in
0: one thing you said there about how, in a sense, the whole of the world, the country hasn't come to terms with that yet. Can it? And what are the impacts of that still felt today?
1: There are so multiple, these impacts, that I don't even know where to start. Until today, people are afraid to speak their own language when strangers are present. Because you might expose that you're local and not one of the Russian-speaking ones who can be from whoever, therefore are deemed more protected to people overeating and having disorders that have the physical dimension. There is lack of trust in the system that it can protect you. There is a general feeling of insecurity That is very high and as a result people make decisions in an environment that has much higher level of anxiety and that cuts the planning horizon that makes people more driven towards zero-sum game basically if we look at ukraine as a society then ukrainians would tend to go into instant gratification In greater numbers than in other societies, and that affects the quality of political life, that affects the quality of consumer behavior, that affects the quality of life in general. So we haven't scratched the surface of what the trauma means. One thing that we see for sure is that it's very difficult to bring relief to the veterans of war and to help them to reintegrate back into society. Some people have been fighting for much longer than the full-scale invasion that Russians started almost two years ago, because the war with Russia actually is going on since 2014, which we often forget. So reintegrating with society for some of the veterans is difficult, because that means that they have to reintegrate with trauma, which is a different kind of trauma than the one that they bring from the battlefield. And it's really not fun. It's really painful. And it's really something that many Ukrainians wish they never went through. Do you think
0: enough is being done to prepare for bringing soldiers home and trying to recover or begin the process of recovery from some of the trauma you've just described? The scale is unprecedented.
1: And because of that... It's not a matter of whether enough is being done. Definitely not enough is being done. It's a matter of whether we can actually do more of that, considering other challenges that we have. I think a lot of resources are distracted to speed up the arms delivery. I think a lot of resources are distracted to bring ourselves to a better conceptualization of what the future brings for Russia. And I think part of the reason why many people in the West are hesitant to assist Ukraine is because they simply cannot imagine the world where Russia loses. And, you know, this is not a sea empire in which these parts of old empire just fall off and they automatically gain their statehoods and the effects are cushioned by the distance. If Russia starts falling apart, and I believe this is the inevitable scenario strategically, then it's going to be messy, and the world will have to deal with the aftershocks, and the world will have to deal with the consequences. Unfortunately, too many people believe that if they shut their eyes, the problem will disappear. From the Ukrainian perspective, we understand that we actually have to work to prepare ourselves, because Ukraine is going to be the first country that's going to be hit with all the tsunami waves that will be caused, but also help our partners in the EU and in the West to develop a common policy that we can together practice to actually assist these new states in their transition so they don't have to find the hard way where the road to transformation is with all the dead ends that Ukraine has tried in the early years of its independence. But at the same time, we want Russia to be able to start its own statehood in the right way that would allow it to be in peace with itself and its own citizens, but also with the world around it.
0: We hear there about the tsunami waves to come from a Russian disintegration. The conversations you have in Washington I sense you would get similar hesitancy that we've just described about the consequences of a Russian failure and what that might mean and the dangers of that, particularly around nuclear weapons. When you have that conversation, what do people say to you and how do you respond to that? So I'd say there's two
4: big schools of thought in Washington there's one school of thought that can't wait for the day for Moscow to fall, right? And some of the think tank people in town will be driving the tanks, and flying the airplanes, you know, if they know how. To be serious, though, there's a crowd that would love to see Russia fall. And they're not very afraid uh, of the insecurity that would follow. Then there's the, I'd say, the, the Biden school, which is afraid, which is cautious, which has been schooled by the Cold War. And it's very much afraid of escalation, and it takes the escalation risk seriously. And that's a very conservative way of looking at it. But again, this is nuclear war, so it's right to be conservative. You know, there's probably a third camp, too, that is not gleeful, doesn't want Russia to fall apart, but wouldn't mourn the end of the Putin regime, but would be fearful of it breaking into constituent parts. And, you know, there's all kinds of uncertainty. The State Department doesn't like uncertainty, right? The MFA doesn't like uncertainty. Government bureaucrats don't like uncertainty. It's impossible to plan. So there's endless discussions, Francis, in Washington about sort of gaming this different scenarios out. Vladimir Putin is not young, right? He's 71 years old. He's not going to be with us forever. But I just went to a think tank discussion this week about what are the options? And most think tankers assess that Putin will be in power for you know as long as the good Lord allows him to be on Earth, right? Sorry, that that's
0: pretty remarkable, isn't it? When we've seen a potential coup that that threatened his power potentially in Moscow, I mean that seems the fact that the United States, many people are still thinking that Putin is there for as long as he wants to be.
4: That's the consensus in the expert community, right? So when Prigozhin did his. his you know, big march. Everyone got on TV and said, Oh my God, look how weak the, the regime is. That was the wrong way of looking at it. Putin is in power, he's strong. I'm sorry, I said it too on TV and I was wrong, and the rest of my colleagues are wrong. Putin is strong and in charge, and the economy is fine for now. If we want to get serious about sanctions, maybe but the economy won't be fine. But so far he's in the Catbird seat. And I think the interesting question, so I gotta do a little bit of an argument about the different scenarios. And one of the people there said, U.S. policy's fine. I don't think we need to look at U.S. policy toward Russia. You know, and I started waving my hands like a crazy lady and I said, U.S. policy towards Russia is an utter failure. I think we should go back and look at all the mistakes that we've made. There's other things that we could be doing now to get Vladimir Putin's attention, but
0: no one wants to have that conversation. What do you think of the long-term debates as this war goes on here in the United States?
4: OK, so with the immediate kitchen on fire debate is do we give Ukraine more assistance now to carry it through, you know, the next period? And we see debates within the Republican Party. Democrats are pretty solid. Republicans, it depends sort of on what kind of Republican you are. But as the war carries on, inevitably, Americans are going to be interested in other things. And that's not a knock on Americans. That's just the way that human behavior works. So Ukraine needs to get the weapons it needs TACMS, it needs air, it needs some other systems as well in order to be able to prosecute the war. When you talk to the folks who are watching on the counteroffensive and looking at Zaporizhia and they're saying, oh my God, the Russians had a year to put these defensive systems in place, you would not ask another NATO ally to prosecute the counteroffensive in the way that we're asking the Ukrainians. I think that's a very fair criticism. General Zaluzhny, who's in charge of the effort, doesn't give interviews very often. So when he gives an interview, you know, your ears perk up. And he got mad in the interview he gave. And he said, you're asking me to do the impossible. You're asking me to violate NATO doctrine. You wouldn't do it yourself. And I think that's a hell of a challenge.
0: It must also be a challenge to educate a people. This is something that's just as true in Britain about a country they wouldn't have known very much about at all prior to the full-scale invasion. Do you think the American public is more aware of Ukraine now, or do you think it's still really only scratched the surface and still has a lot of misconceptions?
4: Is it okay if I say both? Of course. Okay, excellent. We're all about nuance in the podcast. Excellent, excellent. So Ukraine has a global brand, but at an enormous cost. Right. President Zelensky is the modern Churchill of our generation. And I think people are Ukraine curious and they're starting to discover vishybalkas, these beautiful embroidered shirts. They're starting to discover some Ukrainian brands. Maybe they're trying Borscht for the first time. You know, there's a wonderful cook in London named Olya Hercules. We've had her on the podcast. She's lovely. We're sitting across the street from Ruta, which is a wonderful new Ukrainian restaurant in Washington, D.C., and it has art from modern Ukrainian painters. So I think people are starting to get Ukraine curious, but not enough people have gone. Not enough people are studying Ukrainian. The good news is, though, that more departments are offering Ukrainian. So I think we're going to see a renaissance of the study of Ukrainian language and also just an interest in Ukraine. Ukraine is the most dynamic country that I've been in. It's full of people with incredible promise, great intelligence, The IT sector is gangbusters. The fashion sector is on the front of Vogue all the time. But, you know, before the war, it was a place where I think people had a lot of blinders on. And they sort of lumped Ukraine and Russia in the same category. But as we get closer to the end of the war, I hope more and more people will get interested and get curious about Ukraine. Its music scene is amazing. I could go
0: on and on. And coming towards the end of our interview Is there anything that we haven't talked about today that is very much on your mind that may not be perhaps the subject of conversation in the wider Washington community? Well,
1: I think Ukraine is the litmus test of how attached we are to the principles that we proclaim. And the urgent matter is the arms and the things that we need to do immediately to relieve the pain. But then later, we will see whether we will go along with continuation of the Russian narratives. And we, in many cases, do not decolonize our textbooks fast enough. We do not give a chance to young agencies. We view the rest of the world through the old optics, And as a result, we get an angry response from the countries that are now called the global South, who in many cases say that Ukraine is hypocritical because if it wants to strengthen its agency, why does it go and deal with and integrates with the filthy West? And that's an argument that is very difficult to counter. Argument within the terms of the debate that's been set over the decades. So we'll have to go deeper, we'll have to go further than Ukraine. So in a sense, I would say Ukraine matters, but it it's also a litmus test for the other issues.
0: It's always philosophical. Minda, very final thoughts from you about perhaps where we're at, and are you an optimist after all that we've seen, or is this a very pessimistic moment for you?
4: This is an easy one. Ukraine can win. And I offer a few closing thoughts. So I am not optimistic by nature, and my colleagues will tell you that, but the intelligence community has assessed that the Russian capacity to wage war and to take its fight to NATO has been seriously degraded as a result of the war. I look back on the last 600 days, and when you look at the way that the Ukrainians have fought, and they've been able to retake Kharkiv and Kherson, And the fact that they hold more than 80% of their territory, I would point to that as an excellent sign. This is an existential fight and Ukrainians will fight with forks. You know, even if the United States, even in the worst case scenario, even if Donald Trump is reelected, Ukrainians are not going to relent, but we have to do this. This is in our DNA as Americans, as Brits. We will not allow after the post-world order. We said never again. Do we mean it? I think we do.
0: Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We've also started doing the same for what is unfolding in the Middle East. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Just follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As the disinformation war ramps up, we're relying on your support more than ever. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.